I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, I'm Mark Riley, And I'm Rob Hughes. And you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie, the greatest rock and roll star in the world ever, ever. So, where are we going this time, Bob? G is for Gus Dudgeon. So, Angus Boyd Gus Dudgeon, born the 30th of September 1942 in Woking, Surrey. He died on the 21st of July 2002, tragically. We mm. will get to that. Mm. So, some biographies suggest that he began work at Decker's studio in West Hampstead, London, where he started off as a T-boy and was eventually promoted to the position of sound engineer. That's one kind yeah. of story. Isn't it? And that is some leap. If you can imagine that. Oh, it goes... I'll have a cup of Rosie Lee, and whilst you're at it, could you pan the flange on the Artwood single? No bother, boss. Didn't happen. No. That's what he said. Anyway, he said that this is from an interview with Gus 2001, possibly, Mm. by a guy called Rick Clark. He said, well, basically, when I left school, I ran through 11 jobs in four years. I got fired from every single one because he used to get bored and would leave without telling them. I worked in a toy store. I sold Purple Hearts. On the streets of London, a pound for 100. I worked in a clip joint, an advertising agency. Just ridiculous jobs. I had no idea what I wanted to do. But my mother was doing PR for a company that was just opening, which found jobs for people called Manpower. You love this. So my mum came home. She said, listen, we found you a job at recording studio. I said, doing what? What do I know about recording? She said, well, I don't know. But this guy got sent to a studio last week and I don't think he was that qualified either. Right. <laughs> just taking anybody on. So uh, Gus said, oh, OK, I thought, right. Okay, I'll go and do an interview. And he was, I was 17, 18 years old at that point. Went for an interview for this job at Olympic Studios, which was just off Baker Street at that point in, in an alleyway. Walked into the reception area, and there was a series of Lonnie Donegan EPs on the wall, of which I had two, and actually still have to this day. And in true kind of cheap EP style, they had the same photographs on the front of each jacket, only slightly tinted differently. One was orange, one was green, but exactly the same picture of him. And behind him were these acoustic tiles. Right then, he says, I noticed behind the receptionist were the same acoustic tiles. All of a sudden, I got this rush. I thought, wait a minute, people make records in here. I can't believe it. So he's there. By the time I'd gotten up to the uh, boss's office for the interview, I was already working in this place in my mind. He asked me certain questions, like, did I know how a tape machine worked and so on. By a weird quirk of fate, I actually did have a tape machine made by a company called Baritone, and I was able to record little things at home and make a bounce on it, which is sort of nifty, and impress my friends. And the only person I knew who had a tape machine at the time. So he just feel like all the stars were aligning for him. It's all there for him. And he said, so obviously I was headed in the right direction, albeit inadvertently. So he asked me questions and I waffled on a lot of crap. His words, not mine. And he said, could you take a tape machine to bits and put it back together again? I'm going, yeah, of course I can. And they said it was completely untrue. A week later, he rung up and offered me a job. I mean, amazing, really. On the very first day, I made a decision. Gus, 
this is it. This is your job. This is your life. And this is what you have to do. And he said, I remember Del Shannon came in and did a session. I was wetting myself. So he worked with the Artwoods, led by Arthur Wood, who's a brother of the Faces and Stones player, Ronnie. Uh, and he also worked on the Zombies, She's Not There, massive mm. hit. And John Mayall's album, Blues Breakers, with Eric Clapton, that in 1966. Tom Jones, the Rolling Stones, 10 years after. Worked with all these bands. Oh. Bonzo Dog Band as well, so he's doing the Donut in Granny's Greenhouse and Tadpoles. And then he gets to make three albums with Michael Chapman, Rainmaker, Fully Qualified Survivor and Wrecked Again, all of which feature string arrangements by Paul Bookmaster, so here we go. So he then produced Bowie's 1969 single, Space Oddity, which he and uh, Bookmaster working together again. Yeah, the story being that Tony Visconti was offered the job as the role of producer on Space Oddity, but he didn't like it, did he? He called it a mere novelty record. Mm. Now, it, you could see it as a slightly strange mood because he knew Bowie's work, and, of course, Bowie had done a fair few kind of novelty records before. He'd done The Laughing Gnome and Uncle Arthur and Please Mr Gravedigger. So he, he, he was kind of quite partial to quirky stuff, wasn't he? But it, what was uh, Tony Visconti's loss was uh, obviously a, a huge benefit to... Gus Dudgeon yeah. because I mean Tony Visconti it seems was trying to even engineer the fact that Space Oddity would end up as a B-side That's right. and he would do the A-side yeah. but that wasn't to be the case the, the record company heard it and loved it and obviously he got the space landing and all that kind of stuff yeah. and so it, it, yeah he, he missed out well Gus Dudgeon clearly understood Bowie knew where he was coming from because he had worked with Mike Vernon when uh, Bowie did his debut album for um, Dear Ram Stroke Decker in 67. So he, he'd met him. I think he, he was encouraged by what he saw. He knew there was potential there. So he said later, he said, the only reason Space Odyssey was done is because the label was looking for some kind of gimmick. Now, at that point in his career, Bowie's manager couldn't give him away. So Mercury picked it up very cheaply, got in touch with Tony Visconti. Tony said he'd do the album, but he hated this Space Oddity song. So he said, Gus is in the next office. Pop in, see if he wants to do it instead. Uh, he can do it on the B-side. I'll do the album, as you just mentioned. And that's how it all came about. He said, I spent more time planning ahead of the recording more than any other that I'd done before. The demos I did for Space Oddity were bloody good demos. I also spent a lot of time planning the first Elton John album, but it came out of a habit from Space Oddity. And that approach, he said, just proved to be so successful. Yeah, he went on to work with Joan Armour Trading, and Kiki D, Ralph McTell, Gilbert O'Sullivan, Linda's Farm, Fairport Convention, Sam Gopal, uh, and the Beach Boys, and also like XTC and Menswear and the Frank and Walters. Yeah. Uh, but he, he died tragically. So it was the uh, 21st of July 2002. So Dudgeon and his wife Sheila mm. died when the car he was driving veered off the M4 between Reading and Maidenhead. The inquest recorded a verdict of accidental death, noting that he was intoxicated and had probably fallen asleep at the wheel whilst driving well in excess of the speed limit. Um, so uh, just a tragic end for yeah, him. Yeah, absolutely. It's worth mentioning as well that uh, on Elton John's album, 2004, Peachtree Road, is dedicated to the memory of Gus and Sheila Dudgeon. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. G is for Glass Spider Tour. Mm, the Glass Spider Tour, undertaken by Bowie, a worldwide tour undertaken in 1987 in support of his album Never Let Me Down, starting off in May 1987, preceded by a two-week press tour that saw Bowie visit nine countries throughout Europe and North America to drum up interest in the tour. I mean, obviously, he was really going for it here. As we'll discover, he'd sort of invested so much of his time and his money in all of this stuff. And it was also the first Bowie tour to ever visit Austria and Italy, Spain, Ireland and Wales, with a sponsorship from... Uh, Pepsi. It was also intended to visit Russia and South America, but the, they got cancelled, didn't they, those plans? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And so it was called the largest touring set ever. Let's get to it. Mm. So Bowie conceived the tour as a theatrical show, not for the first time, and included spoken word introductions and some songs, vignettes, and employed visuals, including projected videos, theatrical lighting, and stage props. 
On stage, Bowie was joined by guitarist Peter Frampton and a troupe of five dancers choreographed by longtime Bowie collaborator Tony Basil, who yeah. had done the Diamond Dogs tour with him anyway. Yeah, we should also mention one of his other guitar players was Charlie Sexton. He was the sort of hot young thing at that point. Everybody wanted to work with him, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, he went on. I saw him playing with uh, in Bob Dylan's yeah. band. So, yeah, he re- another go to guy. Yeah, with the theme of the actual tour being rock stars versus reality. Mm. And it was divided into two acts and an encore. So the set list was modified over the course of the tour. Bowie used to pick up different tunes. And yeah. I mean, his intention quite a lot um, early on was to play stuff that wasn't really a massive hit. Mm. He didn't want it to be a greatest hits tour. But it was overshadowed completely by the, the size of it, wasn't it? Yeah, it was as well. And also, you know, you've got to remember 1987, he's, he's really breaking ground here for a lot of big theatrical shows that came in the decades after, wasn't he? Well, he was a guinea pig, wasn't he? And a trailblazer mm. in, in, in many different stages of his life. But uh, other people lifted ideas from his ambition as well. So that that is a kind of key to the whole Glass Spider tour because I saw it yeah. and I didn't enjoy it. And it, I, it, we'll get to all the ramifications sure. of it. Uh, but other people benefited off the back of it because mm. he really stuck his neck out and tried it. So the tour was financially successful and yeah. well attended because on the back of Serious Moonlight, it's going to be, isn't it? Of course it is, yeah. But Six- the critical reception was pretty poor. Yeah, that was the thing. So, I mean, Bowie wasn't used to that, was he? Because Serious Moonlight had been such a massive success financially and critically, and he just wanted to kind of go up a gear, sort of revive the theatrical stuff he was doing in the 70s. But, you know, the critics didn't like it, so he was a little bit of a, kind of stumped by that, disappointed, you'd imagine. Yeah, I mean, uh, there is a possibility that Bowie overthought this one. Mm. You know, it, it says, like, preparations for the tour began as early as 1986 when Bowie warned his band to be ready for next year, saying, I've eaten, slept, and thought about nothing but this show yeah. for six months so you know yeah he, he had a clear goal for the tour and the great thing is that he'd been going around America and you know for various different tours and seeing the venues as the years go by get yeah. bigger and bigger with better facilities mm. and he thought well we're going to be able to do that so he used some of the same tricks that he used um, on the uh, Diamond Dogs tour didn't he yeah he did so including for example like the elevated seat and you've got Bowie doing the piece on the phone and then of course on this glass spider thing he, at one point he's lowered from the spider's set at the ceiling of it to the opening song glass spider uh, in June 87 that's how it all started up so it's incredibly theatrical and hydraulics and there's so much involved in this show yeah when Bowie was asked what he thought his audience expected of him on this tour he said I guess that they come along to see whether I'll fall down or something Mm. I really don't know I know that they get what they consider is a really good performance I think that over the years I've proved that I do my best to provide them with some new vision of musical information on the stage so I think there's probably that element in it but I couldn't go any further than that I really don't know what they want from me I've never really been able to write for them I've only written and performed that which interests me so essentially they have an agreement with me and that's great I mean I've lost audiences many times over the years and they've come back again for one reason or another I've got a sort of mutual agreement with them if it's not going very well then they stay away which is fair enough you know well he could be talking about me because at that point in time I'd sort of, I'll, I'll be honest I don't want to kind of send this uh, podcast into overdrive but I'd lost interest in Bowie at that point never let me down this is his worst album let's face it his worst studio album and I wasn't interested I literally lived around the corner but I wasn't interested in going to see him right okay well I, I, I was still there and I did go and see it but yeah I was obviously that wasn't the greatest part of his career and, mm. that, and that album as you say we will get to it as well you know it's, yeah, yes it, of course yeah. one interesting aspect of this though he apparently coordinated the whole thing via email so you got to remember this is 1987 so it's him really kind of harnessing new technology before many others got there in the first so you look at the set design here uh, described at the time as the largest touring set ever Obviously designed to look like a giant glass spider. Yeah, 60 feet high, wasn't Mm. it? 64 feet wide and including giant uh, vacuum tube legs 
uh, that were lit from the inside with 20,000 colour-changing lights. Yeah. A single set took 43 trucks to move and was estimated to weigh 360 tonnes. I mean, it makes ELP look like a low-budget tour, doesn't it, in a, in a comma van? The video screens there as well, which was quite revolutionary, mm. you know, and, uh, yeah, the system required to run the show included two separate sound systems, 260 speaker cabinets, a 1,000 lights. A guy called Mark Ravitz was a set designer who previously worked on the 74 Diamond Dogs tour. Yeah, you? so that's crucial, isn't it? It was also Bowie's first tour where he was using wireless microphone technology, so it, it was available, so he used it. Each set, apparently cost $10 million, which is staggering, isn't it? Bowie himself invested over $10 million of his own money to help fund the tour, and he paid $1 million a week to maintain a staff of 150 people to sort of build the three sets as the tour moved around the world. Yeah, so in Philadelphia, where the tour opened in the US, the set was described as taking 300 people four days to build. Wow. It's just unfathomable, it is, really. Yeah. Uh, but he was touring around Europe, and he discovered that the spider was just so big. It's a little mm. bit like the, uh, the opposite of the Stonehenge scenario <laughs> in Spinal Tap, which is obviously, yeah, you yeah. get the measurements wrong, and it's tiny. But we knew what he was, what he was ordering yeah. and was happy to do so. But then some of the smaller venues that they were playing, they just quite physically couldn't get yeah. it in and so he even considered getting another one made a third set made which was called a junior bug set so they could take it into venues which again are big venues but we're talking Madison Square Garden and the like yeah. but they're not football stadiums or whatever and so and so he, he never actually got round to doing that yeah but obviously you can see you talk about him you know been planning this since 1986 he'd been really going through this in minute detail hadn't he also we get to the dance troupe here he hoped to have Edward Locke of La 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 Human Steps to be involved in this show, but the group was booked uh, with other stuff going on at the time. He later sort of lamented the fact that the tour may have been viewed differently if Human Steps had been involved. Uh, it would have been a different ball game, he suggested. Yeah, I mean, it really was... Uh... <sighs> I mean, there is a video of it that you can watch, but mm. it's just carnage, really. There's just people running around the stage and flitting left to right and loads of dancers, and, and Bowie had that haircut, which wasn't his best haircut, no. you know, let's no. be honest. No, let's be honest. The what? opening acts on the tour, Duran Duran, Susie and the Banshees, playing mm. to these ginormous audiences, you know, and also the cult and Erasure and the Stranglers, a quite strange one. Yeah, Iggy Pop too, Nina Hagen, uh, Eurythmics, etc. Although, when he got to Italy, it's the, suddenly the tour was beset by tragedy. Wasn't it? Yeah, well, uh, there was one uh, lighting guy who fell off and actually yeah. died, and then the following night, another guy fell off the gantry but didn't pass away. Mm. There was rioting in Rome, Bowie was performing through tear gas, and all, all manner of things. Pretty crazy, really. But the best one is as the band's plane was leaving Rome after their show on the 16th of June, a bomb scare forced the plane to return to the airport, only to discover that the local chief of police had used it as a ruse to get Bowie's autograph. No. Unbelievable, said Bowie of the incident. I was not so much annoyed as stunned. That could only happen in Italy. <laughs> That's ridiculous. At one point, also during the European tour, the guitar player Carlos Alomar ripped a ligament in his leg, which was an injury that caused him to change his on-stage character. Uh, Alomar said, he said, I had to change my character into the mad limping Mad Max reject with spiky hair. I went to a chiropractor, asked him for a lot of metal stuff, leg braces, back braces, everything like that. Now I'll be adding more metal as the show progresses. So it's, it's almost like kind of amateur dramatics in a way on, on a huge scale. And it also shows you the minutiae really of it because even the guitarist has got a character. You know, when you go on stage and you're yeah. playing the guitar for a, a gig to uh, maybe 60,000 people and you think, all right, what's my motivation for this? <laughs> Just play the bloody song. <laughs> the A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes.
G is for Reeves Gabrels. So born in Staten Island, New York, in June 1956. Mother Claire, she was a typist. His father, Carl Winston Gabrels, worked as a deckhand on tugboats in New York Harbour. So Reeves Gabrels started playing guitar at the age of 13, and the following year, 1971, his father arranged for lessons with a guy called Turk Van Lake, who lived in the neighbourhood. And uh, he was a professional musician who played with Benny Goodman, amongst others. Mm. So after high school, Gabrels attended the Parsons School of Design and the School of Visual Arts in New York, but he continued to play guitar. He met the jazz guitarist John Schofield, from whom he took more lessons. Then he moved to Boston to attend the uh, Berklee School of Music, left without a degree in 1981. And during the 80s and early 90s, he was a member of bands including uh, Life on Earth, The Atom Said and uh, Rubber Rodeo. So now, of course, we get to the Bowie Connection. So it seems that David Bowie met Reeves Gabrels in 1987 during the tour. Glass Spider, we've got to presume there, uh, because Reeves Gabrels' wife at the time, Sarah Terry, was a publicist on mm. it. So, yeah, so that was the uh, first time that he met, and the first project on which they both worked together was a reimagining and rearrangement of the song Look Back in Anger and a live performance combining dance and music and projection and all manner of things. Now, a few years ago, I did interview Reeves Gabrels, and he was talking about that first meeting with Bowie, and he said, um, you know, we were just kind of hanging out a bit. We started working on this extended uh, version of Look Back in Anger. He said, I ended up staying at his place. This was in uh, Switzerland, I think, at the time. Uh, for a couple of weeks, during which he and I spent a fair amount of time watching Faulty Towers, playing obscure records for each other and writing songs at Queen's Mountain Studio in Montreux. I think what was uh, impressive from Bowie, he didn't realise that when he first met him, he was a guitar player, but he was interested in the fact he'd been to art school and he thought he was maybe, a, you know, an abstract painter or an impressionist. So he wasn't sort of seeing him in terms of a musician to begin with. Strange. So, yeah, so you look to 1989, so Bowie, by this time knowing full well that he can play guitar, they join up with the Sales Brothers, so that's Hunt Sales and Tony Sales, previously worked with Iggy Pop, obviously, and they formed the band Tin Machine. Now, we'll be looking at Tin Machine mm, a little bit further yeah. down the line. And again, you know, the, it does uh, reflect uh, well, your thoughts, really, of uh, Glass Spider, because I went to see Tin Machine and I didn't really enjoy it. Yeah. And the th- you know, if I had a thought earlier on of being in a small club, it was the International 2 in Manchester and watching David Bowie wow. and they think, oh, well, I will die and go to heaven. But mm. I just n- I never really got my head around yeah. the, the Tin Machine thing, you know. Yeah, I don't think you were alone, were you? Let's face it. I mean, they did a couple of albums and a live album but Bowie always said later it was necessary for sort of you know just burning the ground and making room for a new career revitalising his career yeah it was a fresh start for him in a way wasn't it but Gabrell's carried on working with Bowie anyway and so he's then on uh, Outside in 95 he's on Earthling 2 and on Hours in 1999 the last two of those Earthling and Hours he co-produced it as well so Bowie obviously really trusts him and then he and Bowie wrote Dead Man Walking which from from Earthling was ended up being nominated for a Grammy great tune Uh, they also did the soundtrack to a computer game called Omicron the Nomad Soul for uh, a French publisher. And then uh, Gabriel sort of ended his association with Bowie in late 99. His last performance was uh, in New York City. Right. And I would have to say, like a lot of Bowie cohorts, just a, a brilliant musician. Mm. I mean, he really he, he got sounds out of that guitar that you'd never heard before or since. And these days he's playing with The Cure, I believe. He is, yeah. I've just got one quote here because he's talking about um, Hours. And I think he had really big hopes for that because he said... Uh, he said, I felt ours was sort of like the morning after record, a bit of a sort of deeply felt bittersweet thing. I thought we'd written a Diamond Dogs for the new millennium. Quite possibly the lack of a tour to support the album. And my decision to leave the fold immediately after is the reason for it was, it's so overlooked. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. G is for Guy Pilar. Yeah, Guy Pilar, born in Brussels, Belgium, April 1934, died in November 2008. He was an artist, a painter, illustrator, comic artist and photographer. He did everything, Mark. Uh, most famous for the book Rock Dreams, which he did with uh, the English writer Nick Cohn. And also for doing the covers of the Rolling Stones album, It's Only Rock and Roll, and Diamond Dogs, which we will get to. And he did film posters for Taxi Driver, Paris, Texas, Shortcuts. And also, uh, Frankie Goes to Hollywood took the name from one of his uh, paintings from a poster featuring Frank Sinatra, you know, Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Yeah, that's right, yeah. So his style was influenced by psychedelic art and pop art, and he moved to Paris, where he worked variously in advertising, set design for the casino, and the Crazy Horse nightclub film and television. So everything, really. Uh, as you say, he worked on a comic strip as well. Uh, so he was, um, he, he was a very talented guy, no doubt about that. But the, uh, the magazine that he worked for was called Harakiri, mm. which was a, a satirical magazine, which was a forerunner of the uh, Charlie Hebdo. Yeah. Believe so. Okay, so we get to 1973. As I mentioned before, he's working with the journalist Nick Cohn on Rock Dreams, which supposedly sold a million copies after it was published the following year. Which is, oh, it's just such a great book. I mean, it's it's Pilot's visual interpretations of rock stars of the age, accompanied by Cohn's text, and there are so many kind of memorable pieces in there. And I believe a lot of the uh, original artwork has been bought since by Jack Nicholson. Well, you, you look at it's only rock and roll by the Stones, and you look at Diamond Dogs, and then from there on in, you can recognise his style, can't you? Mm. Uh, but the subjects of the uh, different rock stars in Rock Dreams, you've got Eddie Cochran lecturing at some ladies. No mm. offence, Eddie. That's right. You've got the Beach Boys with the cheerleader. Yeah, the Beatles being chased by a Rosa. You've <laughs> got Bob Dylan in a fur coat in the back of a limo. Also a uh, back of a limo shot of Diana Ross kind of going through the streets of Detroit, I think, in the middle of the night. The... Yeah, you've got Hank Williams zonked out in the back of a car with his guitar. You've got Elvis Presley posing on the street corner just by his uh, swanky house in the background. Yeah, Dwayne Eddy playing guitar in front of a jukebox. You've got uh, topless Mark Bolan. You've got Rod Stewart getting arrested by two Rosas. Lots of Rosas going on here. You've got Alice Cooper chilling out. 
And the drifters, perhaps predictably, under a boardwalk. Yeah. And then, after the success of Rock Dreams, Peel Up was approached by the Stones to paint the cover of its only rock and roll, which is uh, them, you know, sort of descending the staircase in this giant ballroom, and it's, it's, uh, it's a wonderful visual image. The story goes, though, that Jagger sort of mentioned Peel Up to Bowie. They'd, sort of round, they'd go around to each other's flats, wouldn't they, at that point in time? And before you knew it, Bowie had got on the phone and he'd been talking to Peel Art himself, said, look, do something for me. Yeah, and so, I mean, it, we have mentioned this before, actually, but so there's a Terry O'Neill photograph of Bowie so reclining in a dog-like pose, if mm. you like. Couldn't see any bonios or shapes there, but, he, you know, he was, he was method, and he, so he was lying there. That's what G.P. Lark took as a template for yeah. the, the actual painting itself. And again, we've discussed the fact that the dog on the original version had genitalia. Yes. And that caused a bit of a stink. <laughs> <laughs> Pardon the phrase. And so very very few of them... Very few few of them actually got out there. Well, you know, they were the only the ones in displays in shops, weren't That's right, they? Yeah. And they're worth an absolute fortune. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, so it's... it's um, I don't know what else I can say about that. <laughs> the A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. G is for George Underwood. Yeah, George Underwood. So we'll be looking at his childhood, his early life with Bowie, his art, his music career, and the company set up called uh, Main Artery with a guy called Terry Pastor. We certainly will. Okay, so George Underwood, born the 5th of February 1947, is a British artist and musician, and he's best known for designing album covers for numerous bands in the 1970s and his collaborations with long-term friend, singer-songwriter David Bowie. So uh, the 10-year-old David Bowie met the 10-year-old George Underwood at the beginning of 1957 when they both enrol at the 18th Bromley Wolf Cubs at St Mary's <laughs> Church and attend Friday night gatherings. I know also that Jeff McCormack was there at part and parcel of the same scenario ah, okay. and they became very close friends inseparable according to George. Well they even had alternative names for each other now nicknames is one thing of course but in this case Bowie became Robert. Now it is David Robert Jones unless we're mistaken isn't it in it's the not, first place? It's not a massive flight of, of fancy is it really? Not really a nickname uh, and George became Michael so anyway, in July 1958, they both went to summer camp and they took with them their respective instruments. This is interesting. So David Bowie had a, a skiffle-type bass made from an old tea chest. Right. Many people used to do it at those times. I wonder whether he kind of, you know, just kind of knocked it up while he was there at camp or took it on the bus. It's a bit, it's a bit cumbersome to carry about, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. You'd have to say, it can be a bit, bit more cumbersome than George's instrument, which was... A ukulele. Mm. So they started entertaining all the various people there. Uh, the songs would play like 16 tons, the ballad of Davy Crockett, it's putting on the style really I mean it was just you know the kind of standard show tunes type right. stuff and they'd spend endless hours talking about music and in the Underwood family home in Bromley Okay, uh, so in the autumn of 1961, George gets asked to take lead vocal duties on local band The Conrads, and for his 1961 Christmas present, David Bowie, or Davy Jones at the time, gets his first saxophone. Now, this is interesting. Uh, he uses it to play along to Little Richard Records, yeah. which is understandable. Not long after, he gets his second saxophone. Ah. So I, I, I can only presume there were two different types of saxophone. Uh, but by the summer of 1962, Davy Jones was playing sax in The Conrads and singing two numbers in the set as well, which is obviously crucial, mm. and the tunes that he did were Curtis Lee's A Night at Daddy G's and Joe Brown's A Picture of You, and it was also at this time that Jones told his bandmates that his name was boring. He's got a real problem with his name, Absolutely. hasn't he? And he came up with some other stage names, like Luther J, Alexis J, 
and Dave J. I now, right, I mean, the J. I mean, are we saying short for Jones here? Is that where that's come from? I would imagine so. But, I mean, if you look at somebody who, you know, ended up being David Bowie and became famous for, you know, changing and all that kind of stuff and his invention and imagination, then Luther J, Alexis J and Dave J. I'm, I'm not keen on Alexis J, I have to say. Mm. And Dave J just sounds like some local DJ. It does. Yeah, OK. Anyway, well, that would be his initials, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, it would be. <laughs> it's a very good point, Let's Bob. just move on. 13th of October, 1962. This was a big night for uh, the young David Jones and George Underwood. Two of them went to watch Little Richard at Woolwich Granada. OK, also on the same bill, Sam Cooke. Jet Harris and the Blacks, and Gene Vincent. That is a night out. I mean, these are kind of young lads, the formative age and all the rest of it. What a night. These must have been incendiary, these gigs, for all of the kids yeah. going. Just that you can imagine. I mean, pretty much like people say that, you know, watching Bowie on top of the pops was a, a big moment for them. Watching, like, little Richard and oh. Gene Vincent come into your town, it must have really just lit the touch paper for so many guys and Absolutely. Girls. Well, no, George Underwood actually went to see Buddy Holly, aged 11 as well. That must have been some experience. Wow. So they started going to various venues around London, watching the emerging blues bands, big R&B scene, of course. And before long, Underwood had quit the Conrads. Bowie was singing up to eight numbers a night in the van. So you get the impression, you know, he's edging his way to the front. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, George joined another local band called the Spitfires. And by the summer of 63, Davy Jones was growing tired of the Conrads himself. And he once again joined George and a percussionist called Viv in a band called Dave's Reds and Blues. <laughs> who later became the Hooker Brothers. Dave's Reds and Blues, yeah. I mean, really, you know, uh, we're not doing him any favours, no. are we? Sorry, David. This is poor. So, uh, the 31st of December, David's last gig with the Conrad. So, January 1964, Davy Jones and the King Bees are formed mm. using an existing trio of musicians, which is Robert Allen, who's a drummer, uh, Roger Bluck, who's on guitar, and Dave Howard on bass. And then uh, Bowie goes and invites his old mate, George Underwood, as co-vocalist, not vocalist. no co-vocalist, mm. guitarist and harmonica player. So we've already looked at the King Bees, haven't we, Bob? So we, we don't really need to go into that. But the King Bees, they did split in the July of 1964 and then Bowie fronts the already up-and-running Manish Boys. That's so he, he already had an uh, escape plan, didn't he, with the Manish Boys from the King Bees? Definitely. So we move on now. 15th of April, 1965. George Underwood is now managed by Leslie Conn and also by uh, the future Led Zepp manager, Peter Grant. Wow. Releases a single, Some Things You Never Get Used To, under the pseudonym Calvin James. Names. It's better than Dave J, isn't it? Mm. Uh, and he goes out doing sporadic gigs. We should also mention in, in 1966, he started uh, working on LP covers at Pi Records, incidentally. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, as a bit of a sort of diversion here of his musical talents, in 1968, he's asked by Mark Boland to do the artwork for the debut Tyrannosaurus Rex album, My People Were Fair and Had Sky in Their Hair, But Now They're Content to Wear Stars on Their Brow. Or, as we know it, just the first album. Absolutely. Okay. And I think that, you know, I mean, just going back a little bit, I think it's... I, I remember reading that Bowie was was livid about the fact that um, Calvin James got this single out. He was really jealous right. about that. And then, of course, uh, he goes off also working with who would be his main rival, Mark Boland. George Underwood also designed posters for some Bowie gigs in 1969 and the back cover of the David Bowie album, of course, released in November 69, later rechristened Space Oddity and reissued without George's brilliant but very strange artwork, it wonderfully is. strange, uh, based on a sketch that Bowie, in fact, had designed and given to him. Well, we've got it here, haven't we? we? Have. I mean, the, the, uh, the Mark Boland, uh, the Tyrannosaurus Rex 
cover was pretty weird oh, as yes, well. Yeah. Uh, but you look at this and you think, well, what is going on in there? But yes, it was an original drawing by Bowie that mm. gave uh, George Underwood the, the uh, leanings anyway. Yeah. But uh, one interesting, really, really interesting thing is you can see the clown in the bottom left-hand corner and it looks like he's consoling his mum yeah. very much, very, very, very much in the same way that Bowie does to his mum, in inverted commas, on the Ashes to Ashes video. Yeah, definitely. All sorts of stuff. There's a giant fish. Looks a bit like a trout to me, Mark. Yeah, I might tickle it later. There's a head in the clouds there at the top left. Hermione. Uh, it's Hermione. Uh, there's two astronauts fighting over what looks like a yellow rose. Yeah, uh, a there Buddha. Are, there's a Buddha in there. There's a Mekon as well. There's Bowie in the right-hand corner. With there's a Diddy Men sat round a table. <laughs> it might not be the Diddy Men, but it looks a little bit like the Diddy Men sat round a table. And on the table, it looks like, um, well, of some wheels. Yeah, and a, and a mouse presiding over the, the entire thing. So it's full of lots of clues and strange motifs. And, of course, uh, in the bottom right-hand corner, you've got Bowie with his curly yeah. hair. You might have said that. But, I mean, uh, when the album was reissued as Space I mean, it wouldn't have been any point using that artwork anyway, because of course David Bowie looked nothing like that whatsoever. Mm. Uh, but the cover's great; it's just a really iconic picture of Bowie, and uh, yeah, also he was also known as Man of Words, Man of Music in America, yeah, wasn't he? Absolutely. And I, I've got uh, several copies of both actually, at the risk of uh, boasting to you. Uh, but I did mm. tell you it was a while ago, I think, when we were doing the uh, Mint program on Six oh, yes. Music, yes. Uh, that I bought from eBay a copy of David Bowie. You know, the, just a classic original version yeah. of it yeah. and I was very very happy about this and I didn't notice at the time but the photograph on eBay it had a bit of a flare on the face right. a bit of a you know like the flash yeah. had gone yeah. off and reflected on it and so uh, you can imagine my disappointment that's a very light word to use to consider uh, what I was actually feeling at the time uh, but whoever owned the album and had sold it to me uh, somebody had written Pat on the cheek of David Bowie and also tried to get it off, hmm. not very successfully at all. And so it, it didn't show on the artwork, uh, on the actual photograph yes. on eBay, yeah. and it wasn't mentioned in the job description. And so I was livid. Absolutely livid, but I've still got it, you know, yeah. and, and it's a great, it's in great condition, the oh, record, yeah. actually, which is Absolutely. the most important thing, obviously. Did you manage to sort of raise that with the seller and manage to uh, procure a discount? No. I see. That's okay. a very responsible way of looking at it, Bob, but I didn't do it. I just swore. I just swore probably for a couple of weeks and then just put it in the cupboard with the other one. Well, it still looks great, as you say. It's in good nick as well. It is what it is. I mean, my mother-in-law, bless her, she's passed away now, but mm. she's called Pat, and I was thinking of giving it to her one Christmas, but then again, I thought, maybe not. Right, fair enough. <laughs> okay. Uh, but yeah, it's a great cover, really mm. great. Okay, and I, I have seen the, uh, the original artwork at oh. the back there, um, at the David Bowie is. Oh, it's there, is exhibition. it? How, just incidentally, how big is that? I think it's pretty much the same size. size. Oh, right. Same size as it may be on that version. The, oh, okay. the slightly smaller, maybe like eight by eight or something. I expected it to be huge, like real mm, huge, You could be right. Size. I've got a terrible memory. Yeah. Okay, so 29th of December, Bowie and Underwood go into Trident Studios to record the potential single Hole in the Ground for George, but it wasn't released, uh, and it features Herbie Flowers on bass, the omnipresent. Uh, October 1970, George signs a deal with Bell Records. June the 3rd, 1971, one, this is a big one. Mm. David Bowie invited George to be one of his friends, his famous friends, mm. at the BBC In Concert for John Peel uh, programme, which was recorded at the Paris Theatre. And the other friends included Dana Gillespie and Mark Pritchett and Jeff McCormack, Warren Peace. And George took uh, the vocal duties on Song for Bob Dylan. 
He did. He famously also did the cartoon illustrations of Bowie and the Spiders for the 1972 Ziggy Tour, an album, which uh, also plugged the Starman single. But he did the flyer and the programme for the really, really uber-famous Rainbow Shows. Absolutely brilliant piece of work. And they were made into transfers too. And they were supposed to be going off to uh, the, the American tour with them and all that kind of stuff. Get this. this I didn't know this. Mm. So he worked on a proposed Ziggy cartoon series with Terry Pasta to be presented to Disney and Hanna-Barbera. But Tony DeFries head of mainland Bowie's manager sort of put the kibosh on the idea I mean, that, I mean the only, only the Beatles and the Jacksons were getting their own cartoon strips at that point the Osmonds had one and as the well the Osmonds yeah but, I mean the, the weird thing is you would look at Tony DeFries and the way that his mind was working I mean at one point we know that he wanted to have a David Bowie doll mm. so you would think he would jump on the idea oh. of that but uh, he didn't for some reason and, and it would have been just uh, just amazing to yeah. have seen it but uh, it didn't happen anyway absolutely so it was George's partner at Main Artery I got Terry Pasta Main Artery was the company they founded in 1971 in Covent Garden who tinted the photograph for the Ziggy album sleeve. Yeah, and so uh, it was actually uh, Mark Adams Blam, Total Blam Blam uh, of DavyBowie.com who interviewed uh, Terry a while back, actually. And uh, with uh, Mark's permission, we're going to just uh, relay uh, most of the interview now, actually. Uh, so the, the first question was, uh, where were you situated? Uh, with Terry's answer was, our first studio was in Catherine Street, Covent Garden, London, in 1972. Around 73, 74, we moved to a larger studio underneath the Royal Opera House in Covent Garden. You could hear the opera singers rehearsing, which was fun, if you like that sort of thing. <laughs> Fair enough. When did it fold or when did you stop working there? He said, I think we packed up the studio when the flower market moved south of the river. 1975, possibly. Property developers moved in and the rents went sky high. So Blam also asks, other than Bowie, what other artist sleeves did you work on? And Terry said, uh, record covers were a small part of my work, which was mostly advertising illustration at that time. But here are some that I remember. Three Man Army, Never heard of them. Uh, Pasadena Roof Orchestra, yeah. Carl Palmer, obviously. Oh, yeah. Soft Machine, that's hugely impressive. Wishbone Ash, Beach Boys, and Byzantium. Right, I'd never heard of Byzantium. No, me. Probably because, Mark, they split up on their first gig to promote their album. Well, that didn't help, did Not it? a good sign. Uh, they also did two covers he did for The Sweet, Alex Harvey, numerous other bands, very obscure. He said, I can't remember their names. Oh, how could I forget? A cover for Yori Geller. Wow. Whoa. Okay. We also did lots of product illustration for advertising, particularly for Holland, Germany, France, Scandinavia. Book jackets, double-page spreads for girly mags, that kind of thing. We won an award for a DPS for Playboy magazine and a couple of Art Director of America awards as well. Well, right, OK. And then Blam asked, how early on in the process were you involved in the Bowie sleeves? To which he replied, I was involved only after the photographs were shot. On both Hunky Dory and Ziggy Stardust, I was given a black and white photo print on matte paper and coloured it up using an airbrush and photo dyes. The lettering for Hunky Dory was a new letter set face at the time. It was put down probably onto a piece of coda trace as an overlay. Blam asked, did you hand render the type on the front of Ziggy yourself? He said, yes, the lettering was used uh, using letter set then traced down onto hardline artboard and painted using the airbrush all the lettering for track titles and credits for the back of Ziggy were rubbed down letter set type a very hands-on way of doing things but this was at least 20 years before computers took over the world I remember doing that when in my other career as an artist we'd do that we'd have to rub down the old 
you know, letter set stuff from tracing paper onto the final thing. I worked on a kid's comic called Oink, mm. and you know, half your life was spent with letter oh. set. I mean, yeah, and it was so easy to get one of the letters wonky, oh, no. and oh. then back to the, the drawing board, literally. So, yeah. Uh, Blam asks, uh, did you work directly with David, and if so, what was your impression of him back then? Uh, Terry says, I remember one evening at the studio working late on Ziggy when I had a phone call from David asking how the cover was going. I told him I'd finished the front and was colouring up the back cover shot. He was surprised that there was a back cover shot and asked what uh, was the image. I told him it was a shot of him in a phone box. He was really excited and said he couldn't wait to see the finished artwork. That's just great. Yeah. And uh, he also says, I guess his management maybe were in more control over the shots uh, than we were used to. I met David quite a few times over that period. He seemed an OK sort of guy, certainly more of a conversationalist than some musicians I've met through the years. Yeah. Uh, but it is weird, isn't it, to think that Bowie, I mean, you know, it, again, he's like so on it. Everything, the clothes, the theatre, and the you know the shows mm. and all that—that that he would really just let somebody run away with the cover and do pretty much whatever they wanted with it. Yeah, absolutely. So Blam also asked, how closely did you work with George Underwood? Did he pretty much leave you to it? And Terry says, when George and I shared the studios, we were pretty independent of each other. Art directors would and still do choose an artist for his style or technique to commission work. We'd very occasionally help each other out if we were stuck on something. Right. Okay. Next question was, what was the brief as far as you can remember? Very simple. On Hunky Dory, I was asked to colour it and design, choose a typeface for titles. That simple. And with Ziggy, the same applied. Oh, I would have loved to have had that job, Mark. Mm. Amazing. Other question, was the intention to hand tint both covers taken early on? This, I don't know, said Terry. Perhaps as Hunky Dory was a coloured up photo, they wanted the Ziggy cover to use the same technique. Blam asks, what was the process for the hand tinting? Photo dyes applied with an airbrush, particularly for car illustrations and technical type work. OK, so uh, next question. Whose idea would it have been to colour Ziggy's outfit green and his boots purple when, in fact, the outfit was in black and cream and the boots red? And indeed, who decided to colour the hair blonde on both sleeves? Would this have been an instruction from David or did you have the freedom to colour as you choose? Uh, Terry says, as far as I can remember, the colours were my own choice. If I'd seen a colour shot of the outfit, I would probably have stuck to the actual colours. Same goes for the hair. As people generally like both covers, perhaps it was a good thing. It's weird, isn't it? And you have to wonder why they didn't do it in colour. I suppose, it, I mean, it was shot at night. It was, in the rain, wasn't it? Yeah, so, I mean, maybe it just wouldn't have really been as dramatic. And, and, it, and it certainly wouldn't have looked as good, no. you know, in hindsight. I but... mean, the story goes as well that the whole band were there, the spiders were there, weren't they? But because it was raining, they didn't want to go out and get the hair wet. So really? Just on his own, yeah. Didn't know yeah. that. Okay, uh, this is a good one from Blam. He said, uh, "Were the crease now? This is typical of Blam. Were the creases on the back and front of Ziggy intended to give the pictures a found photograph look or a device to make them look aged?" He said, "I didn't know there were creases. There certainly weren't creases when they left me. Perhaps a courier did it or something, or it was just handled carelessly." Wow, that's great. That's <laughs> terrific. Next question: uh, Are you amused by the fact that they are both such iconic covers now, or did you suspect you were involved with something very special at the time? Yes, said Terry. Very amused. Used, obviously pleased that these covers have become iconic. Certainly had no idea at the time that the covers would reach such a status. This is due to a much greater extent by the fact that both albums are particularly good. We should go back really to uh, looking at uh, George's work because there's so much brilliant stuff out there. And uh, again, you know, doing this podcast, you find out things that you didn't realise before. So uh, when The Man Who Fell to Earth came out, I bought the book, the the, the novel, yeah. and it was a version with David Bowie on the front illustrated. Mm. Uh, and George Underwood did that. Yeah. I didn't know that. Uh, 
I did know that he did the, uh, the the great characters that we talked about before for the Rainbow uh, shows. Yes, and yeah. which was um, so it was Ziggy and Starman and Lady Stardust and Weird and Gilly. And mm. I have got those little badges, those little enamel oh. badges uh, that were released. But can I find them? I most certainly can't. Really, uh, okay. but they're they're beautiful things, really great. Yeah. And, and the big poster, which uh, is also available in the uh, Santa Monica '72. I didn't realise it was available with the vinyl. Eh? With right. the vinyl, but also you've got the really mm. great George Underwood illustration from 1972, which was originally going to be the uh, cover artwork for the uh, the live album of the time. So yeah. it was recorded in 1972. Obviously, it, they thought about bringing it out. They even went that far as to have George doing this great illustration. Uh, but then it didn't come out until years later, Yeah, uh, which uh, now does thankfully uh, feature the artwork. I mean, it's a great piece of artwork. It's sort of like a mirrored image of Bowie holding a microphone out in his Ziggy quilted suit and the rest of it under the spotlights with the crowd there. He's it's, also got the bomber jacket on the other one. Yeah. yeah. Really great. Yeah, terrific. We should talk to him about it. So George Underwood's other work then. So we've mentioned uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex, of course. He did shine on brightly with Procol Harum, which is like a piano with figures inside it. Right. Isn't it? Uh, Mott the Hoople's All Young Dudes, yep. famous sleeve. And the first album by Gentle Giants. So, you know, that great gatefold in the middle, if people know it, with the giant itself, you know, the big giant logo, that's George Underwood's work, which is interesting also because Tony Visconti produced that. Wow, OK. Yeah, a great a great link there, Bob. And, uh, yeah, so, I mean, there's, there's so much stuff he's done. He's got a website. George Underwood yes. has got a website, so you can go and find him as well. And um, we've come this far talking about George without without actually getting to grips with probably what is the most talked about aspect of George's uh, friendship with David Bowie. Uh, Maybe, yes. you know, not professionally, but his friendship, certainly. So he famously punched Bowie in the left eye whilst wearing a ring. Well, this is a story. Right. There's a story that he punched him wearing a ring. Mm. And there's also the uh, the story that it was his uh, fingernail that caught Bowie in the eye. Ah, uh, but right. as we know, it, it made... His his pupil stay dilated. Yes. Which, yeah. you know, was one of those things which it was really weird because when he went on top of the pops, everybody's going, Oh, did you see that guy on top of the pops? Oh, it was crazy. Did you see his hair? Did you see his did you see the jumpsuit he was wearing? Did you see his mates? Did you see his eyes? And he was almost like, yeah, all right, he is an alien. I mean, you know, he's, he's otherworldly, and those eyes didn't look real, did they? I know. And, and people always used to say he had different coloured eyes, but he didn't. He didn't, yeah. People weren't looking. It was just dilated, wasn't it? As you say, it just fitted that idea, that image perfectly. You couldn't imagine, not that Bowie would ever sort of, you know, construct a fight where he'd get injured in the eye, but it just worked so, so well for that idea. It, it, well, it did. It worked. It helped Bowie enormously. It's just a strange thing because it, it just added to the whole mystique didn't it you've got a quote from george there haven't you oh i have so this is george underwood talking about uh, how that all happened he says it was coming up to david's 15th birthday we both liked the same girl carol goldsmith mark uh, so i invited her to a party david got absolutely rat arsed i stayed sober and asked carol out and she said yes next wednesday at the youth club okay david was a competitive sort and he was furious on the day, he phoned me and said, she doesn't want to go out with you. She asked me to tell you. I thought, oh, well, but I went out anyway. And another friend said, you're late. Carol waited and then left. David's call was complete bollocks. And when I later <laughs> heard him boasting about how he got off with her, I saw red. I hit him. I didn't know until a week later that he'd been rushed to hospital. So I went to see him and said, it's not worth it over a girl. And we stayed friends. The A to Z of David Bowie was written and presented by Rob Hughes and Mark Riley and recorded and edited by Howard Nock. If you'd like to review or rate this podcast, well, that would be much appreciated. In the next episode, Hunky Dory.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.